Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Geek Rant, episode 338, 58008. Turn it upside down. Recorded September 30th, 2018, and brought to you by Element OP Productions. ElementOP.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Drive Time Radio for Geeks. I am your host, Mark, the Sultan of the Soapbox Cockroll. And joining me this week, as always, are your two stalwart co-hosts, Seth, the Gooey Kid Anderson, and Miles, the Austin or Wakeham. Hello, gentlemen. Hey, Mark, and welcome back, Opiites. We're only a little late. Howdy, geeks. Yeah, so uh, we took last week off because I had a church thing, and this week uh, I was ready to come back, and, and we were going to start recording at... Uh, um 7 30 or uh, 7 yeah 7 30 right that's when we record <laughs> i can't even remember sure uh, we'll go um, with that eastern time but then i in like yesterday i remembered it's, it's not that i forgot that it was the day but i forgot that the day was on sunday T- today was my 10 year old my, my, my youngest daughter's 10th birthday so this time 10 years ago i was in the hospital for what i'm certainly hoping is the last time having a child um and uh and so you know today is her day she gets to decide what we do and when we do it uh so i asked the guys if we could push it back a couple of hours so we're not only a week late but we're a week and two hours late but it's for a good cause because uh family time and uh happy birthday my little child whose name i won't say (laughs) i don't know why Happy birthday. Yeah. Hey, how old are all your kids? So uh, they all, the, the, the oldest one has a birthday coming up in two weeks. So she will be 16. Um, the middle one is 14 and the baby is 10. It's car time. Well, you'd think that, except she has absolutely no interest in driving. Um, she went and got her learner's permit about two months after her, birth, her 15th birthday, after I badgered her into it. We've done about five maybe driving lessons. She hasn't taken driver's ed. She hasn't been interested in driving at all. She is afraid to drive. So I I, I don't think I'm going to be able to teach this one to drive. I don't think any, I mean, and it's not just me. You know, I've, I've said, I, I will get you professional lessons if you don't want to want dad to teach you. Uh, but she's just not interested in driving a car at all. She's interested in being places. Right, so she wants us. She wants mom and dad's taxi service, but she just doesn't want to drive. Um, huh. And you know, I f- whatever. I remember when my daughter was going through that, and uh, what did we have to do? We we I I tried teaching her, and I tell you what, it as a parent, if you can actually teach your kid how to drive and not scream at some point, you're doing really well. <laughs> you're doing really well. It's. I'm holding myself back at every moment, cringing and grabbing onto the, you know, the car and, oh, no, you know. Anyway, after that, we got professional driving instructors. And what I started realizing was that they specialized in passing tests, not teaching kids how to be great drivers. Mm. Um, so it may be a bit of both that isn't such a bad thing. Well, we have a, a, a fairly large church uh, right at the end of our cul-de-sac. So, we can drive out of our cul-de-sac across a, a moderately busy road and we're in this like acre parking lot. And so that's where we've gone. We haven't gotten out of the parking lot except to, I did make her drive across that road once and, and uh, to and from the parking um, lot. But I mean, she, it, it occurred to me uh, when I was first starting teacher, I think I've talked about it on this uh, show earlier on is um, I, I was driving some sort of vehicle from, 
six, five maybe years old. Uh, I grew up in a rural area, you know, farm sort of stuff. We'd get behind the truck and and uh, haul hay or, or get on the lawn tractor or something. My daughter hasn't driven anything since her power wheels when she was four at all. And so when we got behind the wheel of the car, it was starting with a complete blank. So like she knew nothing. She didn't know what the accelerator was. She didn't know how the brake works. So we, we've been working on just the really basics, like pull out of the parking space, back up into the parking space, turn in a circle, go around. And so we haven't left the parking a lot at all. And so we have, there haven't been any really white knuckle moments or, or shouting moments because we're just really in that. How do we manage mm. this 3,500 pound chunk of steel? Um, so she is so far behind where I was at her age that I think she will need, you know, even if we did really diligent study, she would need longer to be road ready than I was. Having said which that, could, I was not you know road ready when I got my license. Here's an idea. Take her uh, go-kart racing, you know, one of those controlled circuit things, like an indoor circuit or something, and she'd get the sense of what inertia is and you know, how weight displacement works and all that sort of thing and have a bit of fun with it and it's fairly safe. That might be a good starting point. Except it wouldn't be fun for her. She is my my Frady cat child. She's afraid of everything. Uh, I don't I don't know how I gave birth to a child that is fearful because I don't know what fear is. And my other two are just as gung ho as I am. But this one, um, She's afraid of everything, and she's just afraid to drive. And and I, I don't want to force her. I don't want it to be a, a chore, but I also don't want to drive her everywhere. Yeah, see, we raised a Danica Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then, oh, but that's going to be, I was going to say, that's going to be the key to getting her to drive is, honey, we can't take right. you everywhere. You know, if you can't go yourself, you're going to be staying home. And, and we will absolutely get to that point. Uh, we're not there yet. She's only, she'll, she'll be 16 in a couple of weeks. She's not even at the point where I could say you could be driving. So I'm not ready to play that card yet, but we certainly will be playing that card. Uh, so in, uh, I took the week off. My kids were on uh, a fall break here. Uh, that's a thing they have around here. And so I took the week off because I was desperately in need of a week off from work. And so we've just been hanging around uh, doing stuff. We went to uh, the uh, Georgia uh, pilgrimage to the apple orchards, which must be done every fall. We did that. uh, And we just, you know, bowling, that sort of thing. But the one thing I want to talk about was we went to see the movie Smallfoot. I don't even know if you've seen that advertised, but uh, basically it's it's Yeti up in the Himalaya. Um, It's a civilization of people there who don't believe in the legend of the Smallfoot. Right, the big foot, the small foot. Um, it's a cute movie in the way that Trolls was a cute movie. Not not a whole lot of plot. Maybe Secret Life of Pets. Not a lot of plot. Just a series of things that happen in various order. Um, better than both of those two movies, I would say. Much better than Trolls. Trolls was just an excuse to get all those people together and sing songs. Um, so, <laughs> you know, it's not one of those like a Pixar movie that's for adults that kids will enjoy too. This is a straight up kids movie. And adults won't be totally mind-numbed by watching it. So that's my review. The The adults won't want to slice, the, slice their wrists as they watch it, but the kids will enjoy it. Well, I, yeah, I've seen the previews. It looks interesting, maybe, but yeah, not something I'll see. I had no idea Channing Tatum could sing, but he actually sings really well. Magic Mike huh. is a singer. 
wasn't he? Uh, no, never mind. I can't remember the movie. G.I. Joe? That was him. Yeah, he was yeah. in G.I. Joe, but no, <laughs> that's not the movie I was thinking okay. about. Uh, and then, Seth, you, you have um, you have taken the reins, and, and you are... And, uh, wow. No words. Seth, talk now. <laughs> okay, so way back, and I... Every time I look for it, because uh, for a while I couldn't remember the number, but if you remember back in the Element OP slash um, Everyday Linux, golly, what was the name of Everyday Linux podcast? Uh, we did a show called Coffee Talk, episode one seventeen, and we're on three thirty eight now. Well, a guy um, I know from church here, he's something of a coffee snob and looking to do like a little coffee shop on the side or out of a trailer or something. And I said, Hey, have you, have you tried cold brew? And so I've introduced him and he's done some experiment in himself. We went shopping, bought some stuff. And, uh, so this Sunday, um, we actually, you know, my grinder came in and everything. I got the Cuisinart off of, you know, elementlb.com slash Amazon for all of your shopping needs. Um, and, you know, so we ground the coffee and put it in the, we're doing small um, quart test batches. And we got like a bunch of different flavors because he is like, here's, here's the weird thing about this. The one guy in the world who hates all forms of coffee is going in with somebody on the possible coffee business, but he's like the coffee snob and he discriminates between the fruity and the nutty and the high altitude and the mid altitude and the different continents. And I'm like, all tastes like coffee, you know? Uh, so, and it's all kind of bad, but he, anyway, so we just did the um, grinding and the pouring and the sticking in the fridge Saturday afternoon while I was on call for work. And so I couldn't get very far away from my computer because, you know, when my dad was on call, it was, you know, hey, this this thing's broken. You need to be there in like two and a half hours. Well, when I'm on call, it has to be answer the phone and say, may I help you and be at the computer working. So 10 hours on a Saturday, almost chained to your desk was not my idea of fun. But anyway, we were up here working at the church and we got it all ground and we've got it in the bottles and, you know, we're kind of doing, and it's, it, this is so weird because I went back to the pictures that you posted on the episode, I had totally forgot that you had sent me an email a couple of months ago with your current setup, and I just found that this evening. So uh, I sent that to him. But um, anyway, so we're testing, and he is going to be, uh, we brewed, did two of each thing. He's going to try it after two days because he was doing some stuff himself and letting it sit for a day or two because that's what most Cobra people say. So I was like, well, hey, let's do two of each one. He's going to open it like sometime after two and then sometime after four and, you know, do the test things and see how it goes and see if it's something to pursue or not. So anyway, coffee talk might live. And even though you open sourced the information, we've agreed for a small licensing <laughs> fee if we move forward. Um, you know, it won't be much, maybe a penny, a transaction or something. Uh, what, so, you know, just a little thank you for all the work you what, did. What, and uh, What's but, funny is is go ahead. you're thanking me for it, but you're actually replicating all of my experiment. I've already done all those experiments, and I have given you the results of my two years of experimentation. You're refusing to accept those and are going down the exact same road I already went down while thanking me for the well, for blazing the pay uh, uh, trail that you're refusing to follow. 
Well, but no, see, the thing is, we've got about eight different types right, of coffee. Right, which I did the same thing. I did, I did to, about 15 yeah. different varieties from all over the world. I, I tried different times right. from 24 hours up to, to 14 days, and, and I distilled all that knowledge down and said, this is what you need to do. And, and instead, you're saying, let's find out what we need to do. I, and I'm all for that. He Experimentation to, is great, yeah. but don't thank me for it when you're doing it your own way. Right, but he wants to taste and see how it tastes. That that that's why he's doing all the different flavors. Is like I know what this tastes like. What does it taste like? Cold brewed for four days, and so that's why we did all those things. And so, but yeah, but anyway, um, I can. But yeah, I can so, give you the you know, name of a really good intellectual property attorney if you want. <laughs> no, I. I I had intended to uh, open source this in the form of a website. Like so many things in my life, I start out with good intentions, and I end with those good intentions, and I never go any farther. So I actually have a website. It's still up there. It's called Crazy Coffee, crazycoffee.us, and I started detailing this process, and I think I got about four articles in uh, and then stopped uh, documenting because, you know, it turns out I have a life and a job and other stuff uh, to do. So uh, that never happened, but yeah, maybe you guys can can pick up and, and run with it. But yeah, I would love to see you doing your own thing. That would that would make me happy. I, I hope for the best. Yeah, uh, like I say, we'll see. And then, um, you know, and I look at it this way: even if it's something that we try and we didn't do, at least we could say, you know, we tried and we just didn't think it would work out. So, you know, at least this time I'm not just sitting around talking and thinking. So in my experience, actually taking some steps in my experience, I just had just today, I uh, shared some of my cold brew with, with uh, a friend of mine at church. And he's one of those guys that will enjoy, will drink and enjoy any basic black sludge. You know, if it, if it has some sort of ground uh, botanical in it and what water runs through it, you could, you could serve him pinto bean water and he'd be fine with that. He doesn't actually need coffee. And what I found is for those people, my really obsessively engineered cold brew is just another coffee to them because they, they don't, they like coffee in all its varieties or they don't really care. It's just a caffeine delivery system. So, you know, I painstakingly spend hours on this process and a coffee, somebody who enjoys coffee drinks it and goes, yeah, that's, that's good coffee. But my coffee is for people who don't like coffee, which is me. I don't like coffee. I don't like any other coffee, but my own. And, and so I, I share it to people who, who tell me all the time, oh, I don't drink coffee. I don't like coffee. Well, try this. And the general response is, is that really coffee? Are you sure you're giving me coffee? Is that, does that, that doesn't taste like coffee. It tastes like cocoa or, or some other product but yeah because most of the coffee you drink is bad um but anyway so I, I it'll be interesting to see if you have that same experience as you start sharing with people trying to make sales or whatever you'll find that you you think your audience is the coffee fanatic they're actually not the people you want to to um approach with it because they like you know grocery store coffee they don't need right. a special coffee yeah no i I understand, and like I say, we're seeing what happens. So, I, I still don't like it, right. but uh, and, and and honestly, I was quite surprised by that uh, that you didn't like it at all, um, because you're the you're the only person, literally the only person I've ever shared it with that didn't like it. Yeah, but I will probably be one of those, you know, because you can't like 
do a coffee business and not drink coffee. So it'll be one of those things. It'll be like, you know, beer and cigarettes. I'll get over the, I want a gag phase and just force my body to become addicted to it. Like everybody else. And, and you will like this. Do I understand from the notes here that you too have a birthday in your family? Me? No, that's a Blake seven. Does anybody remember the uh, British science fiction show? Blake seven. I just ran across it on YouTube today and I'm watching the first episode, which apparently I have never seen before because they're not, you know, I'm just like, Oh my gosh. And so anyway, Blake seven, it's so so cheesy, man. (laughs) The special effects when that came out were ridiculous, like cardboard special effects, (laughs) but it was so much fun. Yeah. So is this a, tell me, tell me about it. What is Blake seven about? Okay. It, it's a late 70s, early 80s British science fiction show where, um, you know, the uh, oppressive re- regime uh, think something similar like the government from 1984 in space. Um, and then this guy is like on the run from them trying to lead a resistance. And I, I don't remember all of the details, but yeah, the special effects aren't great. And there's this uh, small group of uh, eclectic individuals and if I remember correctly, isn't the computer's name Orac, which mm-hmm. is like this, uh, the greatest computer ever made or something. Somehow he ends up with it and his adventures across the galaxy. And it ran a total of four seasons. I and believe. you could get the 17 so, DVD set on elementopi.com Amazon for the bargain price of $149.99. It's a collectible. Wow. <laughs> that another example of just keeping old junk long enough that people want to pay you for it. Yeah. You know, I, when I saw it, it was, of course, it was on PBS, and I was in early high school. So, you know, the the East Texan geek slash nerd who doesn't have access to a big city and knows what the cool geeks and nerds have and, you know, loved it. I, it was right up there with Doctor Who for me. Um, and so, I like, I'm, when I, as I watch it now, you know, decades Golly, three decades. Oh, man, I'm old. Uh, three decades later, I will be interested to see. You know, I know the effects will be cheesy, but how well does the actual story stand up? Spoiler alert, it won't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I don't know. I Like I say, I want to see because, you know, Star, Star, the original Star Trek uh, the cheese factor on that one was very high, but the next generation and even some of the actual Star Trek stories and episodes, they, they hold up really well in their storytelling. Um, but anyway, we'll, we'll see how the, how, uh, the series is. I, I, like I say, I'm watching episode one and then I'll watch maybe an episode, uh, a couple episodes a week and see how it goes. All right. And you know, in, in the, uh, vein of things that haven't changed in 30 years ces is coming up again <laughs> yeah almost didn't um well for me uh talk about you know, this the, every year they open the registration up for this thing because i go every year and with my my buddy charles from california and we end up meeting in vegas and it's kind of you know we geek out for a few days and uh, every year, it's been a nightmare trying to register for this thing, and they just cannot get it right. Now, granted, 180,000 people go to this thing, but the second they announce that the registration's open, the website breaks. It's like Affordable Care Act. 
You know, please, <laughs> did anybody learn anything about website rollout? Well, this one, this one was like that. So they announced the registration was open, I think, three weeks ago, and you couldn't go to the website. You know, it was non-responsive, down, didn't work. And eventually, I almost gave up on it, and then I decided I'd go back and try and do it again. And lo and behold, it came up. But what came up was totally different to what it was like before, um, telling me that they had outsource this thing to some company and that they were going to... Anyway, I wanted just to mention that this is sort of epic fail for web development because, (laughs) check this one out, and this might be hard to relate to unless you see it, but because they're trying to tell you that you have to re-sign up, you can't use your last year's login to do it for the next one, you go to the website and it's got, you know, a button, register, and it brings you to a page... And the page opens up with a modal dialogue, which, you know, basically, you know, like a window on top of the page that opens up. And in that thing, it's got like your email address and your password and then a link down the bottom that says sign up. And you're clicking on it and it's not, nothing's happening. And you're clicking on it and there's nothing happening. And I'm clicking, I'm clicking, I'm clicking. And I cannot get it. So I tried on Chrome. I tried on Firefox. I tried on Linux. I tried on Mac. I tried on Windows 10 with Edge if you can believe that. Nothing. I'm desperate. clicking, I'm clicking. And so I said to my buddy Charles, I said, listen, can you can you make any sense out of this? Is there something wrong with me? You know, I'm, is it me? And they, they just don't like me anymore. So he goes, and he goes, no, I get the exact same thing. He said, I tried it with Chrome. I tried it with Firefox. And we're clicking on this thing for literally like three or four days. And so he texts me and goes, have you tried it today? So I try it. It's the same thing. Couldn't work it out. So a couple of days passed, I text him back, have you tried it today? No, same thing. And then one day, I bring this thing up to try it yet again. And this time, I carefully read the screen. And what I find out is it's actually a picture of the page that you're supposed to log in with a message in very, very small font at the top that says, when you see this picture, don't forget to click on the sign up link. And then what I didn't realize is if you click away from this dialogue, it dismisses and then you can register. I mean, who designs stuff like this? Would moron design something like this? Uh, anyway, I'm sorry. It was a bit of a rant. I just couldn't believe that something as, as important on the geek calendar could be screwed up so royally by some idiot that doesn't have any idea how human beings work. So there's the thing that you're not supposed to click on and when you click away from the thing that looks like the thing you should click on then you get the thing you should click on roger exactly okay. yeah <laughs> so if anybody out there is trying to register for ces that's what you do okay cool. I, none of that i can't even i can't even <clears throat> it, it's like the the new the new thing now where if you make your mouse go off a page the pop-up comes up and says hey don't wait don't go away so i'm reading an article and i move my mouse off the page to get it away from the the article so that i can read it and then a full page thing comes up blocking the article i'm trying to read saying before you go don't forget to subscribe moron i I just (laughs) i just don't want my cursor on the text that i'm trying to read anyway 
I've ended the session before I'd be in the middle of an article and move my mouth. And I just like, okay, you obviously don't want me to visit your website. <laughs> Bye. Yeah. Are you, are you also finding these days there's more and more, particularly like news sites that are paywalling after you've been there three times, you yeah. can never go back unless you give them money. And then you just, well, or no, it, it's not that it's like, you have to just sign up so they can harvest your data. So a lot of them are asking for money. You just have to register and create an account. Or you just oh. Google the headline and find 53 other pages that have the exact same information on it. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm an AI's worst nightmare. Apparently Google has no idea what to serve me on, on the Google now things uh, or on, on, you know, on your phone where it has the Google news things. Um, I, apparently, I give them so little information that if I search one time how to finger an E chord on a guitar, I get my whole page is just filled up with guitar techniques and guitar tips and the best guitarists in the world. And here's the best guitar riff ever. Back off, people. It's okay. I just I did one search, right? Or, or I'll do another search for uh, you know something super innocuous. And apparently, they just don't know what to do because I don't give enough information. Um, I will. I will. Routinely use Chrome in private browsing mode just to do a search like that because I don't want to get ads for weeks about you know home foundation repair when really I was just looking at you know one little thing about home foundation repair anyway. Rant. Amen. This is called the geek rant. <laughs> so uh, we've got just a couple of news articles. Doug, uh, Seth dug out of the the internet garbage essentially, and uh, the first one. So there's this thing called the Mechanical Turk. It's Amazon's way to get other people to do work for you. They do very small tasks. You give them very small pay. It's been around for a while. Suddenly the UN thinks this is a bad idea. Yeah, it's, well, you know, Amazon Turk isn't the only site. There's a lot of different sites that do that. And then a lot of the things like Fiverr and stuff like that as well, where you're doing these micro tasks instead of, you know, a full-time job. And the thing is, the work on these platforms is often menial and tedious. And the survey found that workers get paid strikingly little are on all five platforms, especially when unpaid work is taken into account. The survey counted unpaid work as time spent looking for tasks, earning qualifications, researching requests through online forums, communicating with the requesters or clients, and leaving reviews, as well as unpaid slash rejected tasks ultimately not submitted. So basically, hey, if you don't have a job and you're just looking for something to do, you're not going to make it rich on these tasks. But if you just do one or two here and there, you might can get some money, but don't rely on it for your paycheck or self-esteem. A, a quote from the article, I mean, which is also a quote from the study, quote, the difficulty of this work is compounded by the working conditions of the workers who are typically hired as contractors rather than regular full-time employees and do not receive the training or psychological support for the work they're carrying out. I'm sorry, who, what? Who? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, these... You, the, the thing is, um, I, for a while, I was on um, this website that was like, you know, you, you get paid to take surveys. And it, it got so bad, like to see if you would qualify for a survey, there would be a 15 to 20 question 
demographic information. So basically they're getting everything from you and then say, oh, sorry, I didn't qualify. So I just spent five minutes doing that in hopes to qualify for a dollar survey that would take 10 minutes. You know, it's not like I'm going to quit my job and live off online surveys, but instead they got it for free with their so-called qualifying questions. And a lot of that goes in with this as well. But yeah, it's just basically people being stupid and have something to complain about. And since today's world is all about how it makes you feel and facts and truth play surprisingly little, this is probably go viral any second now. We're breaking, we're leading the way. <laughs> well, so, okay, so the UN needs to get a clue here because this is not about people in the Western world using Mechanical Turk and complaining about horrible working conditions or making a dollar an hour or something. This is about some poor guy in Bangladesh who has zero other alternatives, and this is a way that he can actually get a bowl of food on his table and eat and avoid starvation, right? It's the same mentality behind what you would what people have been ranting against this this supposed clothing sweatshops where people were paid minuscule amount of work to work you know really hard and fall asleep behind sewing machines or you know making iPhones or whatever the reality is no one forces them to take that job they take that job because there is nothing other than starvation available to them and whose fault is that well it's probably their government and maybe it's the damn un as well because they're not creating any way these people can make a living and i see nothing wrong with offering this as an alternative because nobody is putting a gun to anybody's head and saying you must sit in front of the computer and do mechanical turk all day it's an option that you hopefully don't have to do for very long before you can pull yourself out of poverty and move forward. But you know what? For people who are in poverty, this is a lifeline. And how dare they, the UN, question it for what it is? It's a lifeline. You got something to say, Mark. Go ahead. Come on. Well, it was just one of the things here is that in the U.S., accounting for all paid and unpaid work, Mechanical Turk workers made just $6.54 per hour on average, with a median of $5.63 per hour. That's, quote, significantly lower than the minimum wage in most states and lower than the federal minimum wage of $7.25 an hour. All right, but it's $5.63 more than nothing per hour, which is probably what these people would be making if they weren't on these sites. Uh, the, the Geek Rant logo that you were if you look at your phone right now, should be displaying, uh, came from Fiverr, from three different guys. I commissioned three different people for a total of about $60 to give me logos. I took the pieces that I liked from all three of them, and I put them together. That that kind of work uh, would cost hundreds of dollars had I gone to a design firm and got what I think is a pretty solid logo out of it. Instead, it was about $60, and I gave three people some money. All three of those people had the option of not doing the work, but they chose to make about 20 bucks each so that they could, you know, submit something. And I bought the full rights to the thing. I asked for the source code and the full rights to do whatever. So I don't know any royalties or any of that. And yeah, I got a steal out of that, but it's not like they were mad at me about it. They took the job. They did the work. They got the money they bargained for. I don't understand why this is a problem. This is just a K 
case where the government is sticking its nose in and ruining things. I mean, you know why when you go into like McDonald's now, you don't find humans at the counters. You find these boards that you have to touch on. That's because it costs less than paying somebody $10 an hour to say, would you like fries with that? You know, they can put a computer in and that computer and everything you amortize it out and it's doing it for maybe a dollar an hour. And so, yay, look, we raised wages for everybody, but there's less hours to work now because things are getting automated. So you come out with these little systems that, hey, we could automate this stuff, but, you know, let's farm it out, give some people some pocket change. You know, if you're in a third world country, you know, that doesn't have the standard of living that most of the developed world does, then, hey, uh, this can be life and death. But if you're in a developed country, then, hey, this is a great way for your kids to earn some money to play the video game or to take the class trip. Or you can do a little bit here and there to, you know, pay for vacation or, you know, make the ends meet so you don't lose your house or something. This isn't these sites are not designed to live off of. And if you're going to demand minimum wage for this? Well, then, you know, what's going to happen? You're not going to get paid till you do an hour's worth of work and then there won't be any work. And then, you know, so I don't know. It's just, it's the government being, it's like, okay, you know, back to the coffee talk thing. We were looking at just, you know, and like I say, at this stage, we're just seeing how the coffee tastes and if it's something he likes. Uh, but we were just like, you know, looking at buildings and there's this one building. It's an older building in, you know, rural town, uh, Texas, and it has apartments on the upstairs, but you're not allowed to rent those apartments out because there's no elevator in the building. And ADA requires you to put it in an elevator if you're going to have customer access to a second floor. And I mean, it's just like, you know, I understand you know, you want to give everybody access, but dude, the building was built almost a hundred years ago and you can't add an elevator. So, you know, there's all of this space that somebody owns that they can't utilize because the government, and now there's all this work that could be done and help give people a break who needs something to get started. But now guess what? We can't do it because the government wants to protect us. So way to go government, you know, kill it for everybody. Have you guys ever used purse.io? I've heard of it. You've heard it. of it? Yeah. Yeah. It, I've heard of it. it. It's an interesting site. It, it, it used to be a very common thing when people wanted to spend their Bitcoins back in the day. And uh, the idea was that you would, if you, you know, obviously you can't buy things with Bitcoin on Amazon. So what you'd do is you'd go on Amazon and you'd shop for whatever you wanted and you'd create like a gift basket that you would send somebody that would say, hey, this is the stuff I want. And you'd put it out there on this website and then people would uh, bid to buy it for you. And typically they'd buy it for you at up to maybe 20, 25% off the original Amazon price. And you'd be wondering, well, how on earth is this possible? Well, what was happening was that people in these third world countries who were using uh, Mechanical Turk, they get paid in Amazon credits or Amazon dollars or whatever that that is and then you go out there and say hey I want to buy that pair of Nikes and it's a hundred bucks I will buy it from anybody for 80 bucks and then what happens is that they use the tokens they they earned on Mechanical Turk 
which isn't a dollar significance for them, they would buy it from you and then you would send them the equivalent amount of Bitcoin and they would send it, the product to you as if it was a gift being delivered. And it's just basically the same as actually you buying it, except you got it 20% off and they sold their Mechanical Turk rewards and got Bitcoin, which they could actually turn into something they could eat with. Um, it was great. It kind of died off a little bit when the price of doing these transactions got expensive. It's probably now a thing again. But things like that have come out of Mechanical Turk. The, the whole idea of, of changing the way arbitrage works in, in commerce comes out of this sort of thing. And you start realizing that the world is a smaller place. And that, yeah, you know, there's some guy in Guadalajara, Mexico, working on auto parts and making $6 a day. If you compare Mechanical Turk and what they're making, they probably love to use Mechanical Turk. <laughs> but that's just the way the world works, I guess. I just don't understand why the UN, which is supposed to be a world uh, authority, like, you know, be able to look at the, the economics of the world in general, how they look at everything with such rose-coloured rose glasses based on simply a Western metaphor, because it's not the way it works in Ghana in Africa or Bangladesh or some Latin American countries. And what what this do-gooder mentality runs into is Seth gave a perfect example of, of the uh, the apartments there. Because not everybody can use it, nobody can use it so there you know if there's three apartments there three people are denied housing because uh potentially a, a, a wheelchair bound person is denied housing so if that wheelchair bound person can't do it nobody can do it and and that's the same sort of thing that's going to happen here is if uh the the bangladeshi uh guy can't make nine dollars an hour nobody gets to use the service we'll make them uh, illegal under international law uh, logic defies me when when I try to to understand how these people think, and then I realize that it's not doesn't have anything to do with logic at all. It's all about feelings, and your feelings are you can't leave anybody out. So the only way to make sure you can't leave every anybody out is to leave everybody out. Welcome to socialism. It sure feels yeah. That if way. nobody gets ahead, nobody gets behind. That's right. All right, well, there's a news story that uh, we thought would take a couple of minutes, and we spent about 15 on. Uh, so let's move on now to uh, old guys complaining that the web is making people um, sloppy in their coding. This is from OS News, and I want to do this one because I had this exact conversation just today, not six hours ago, over lunch um, with a friend of mine who is a coder, and I'm a you know quasi-coder from, from way back. And we were just talking about the fact now that because processing power is virtually free and because uh, storage is vir virtually free, nobody bothers to clean up their code anymore. And so that's basically what this article here is about. It's just a guy complaining that, um, you know, if there's errors, as long as error correction can find it, that's fine. What do you feel about that? <laughs> Miles, I put this in here just for you, man. Come on, take it away. <laughs> Um, that's a really interesting one because I'm, you know, I, I started coding when 4k was a lot of memory and, you know, you do amazing things to try to fit a bit of code in a small computer back in 1977. So that was the challenge. And, you know, we, if you saw some of the stuff that people wrote in, in 16k of memory or 32 or 48, 
it blew my mind back then how creative they got, how efficient they were. Um, it was wonderful. And the tools were very, very basic. So you didn't really have all of these, you know, um, code analyzers and things like that. Um, the problem is, though, we've been living under the world of Moore's Law now for, I guess, what, 30, 50 years, right? Almost 50 years. And um, at the rate that everything keeps doubling, the time it takes to write efficient code becomes a negative return on investment when the, the machines keep going up and up and up. I personally believe elegance – code should be something that's like a – like a craftsman's sort of product, right? You don't write it under the basis that it's going to be obsolete in two years' time. That might be the case, but you write it like it's going to stand the test of time, like great literature or great, you know, great prose. If you do things that way, then you want to do it efficiently and you want it to be the best that it represents you as a developer. But we don't have an economy that will allow for that. It may be in the open source world to some degree you might get away with it, but people want it now and they want it fast and they want it McDonald's style. They don't want to get, you know, the five, the, the three Michelin star Gordon Ramsay version. They just want a burger. And that's the problem with code. We're writing burgers now. So I, I love the concept of elegance. I love the concept of tight code that's the best possible. And all programmers would love to achieve that. But when they've got a boss yelling them that we've got to ship next month, just get the thing out, they can't, they can't be perfectionists anymore. Yeah. Go ahead, Mark. No, go ahead, sir. Okay. I was just going to say, you know, just to, if you've been following the um, pitch meetings, elegant coding is tight. <laughs> Sorry. I just, I just wanted to throw that out there. But no, you know, and, and it kind of ties in with our society because, Elegance takes time, you know, um, especially while you're learning. When you get to the point to where you've mastered something, then you can do elegance as you go along. The problem is, you know, companies want to make money, so they want the entry-level coders, um, to, and entry-level coders aren't going to get you master-level coding work. And so who cares? It works. Let's move on to the next project. So, you know, cause I want to make money too. And that's why we get that. And I remember reading this study about how IPv6 was like twice over twice as fast as IPv4. And I was like, wow, it's, you know, it's not what I thought. And then you go in and you read the study and they were comparing IPv6 on brand new state of the art routers against IPv4s on 10 year old routers with like, you know, um, with one little hamster in there trying to keep it all going. I was just like, you idiots, you know, it's, it's only faster because it's twice as fast because the hardware is 20 times as fast. That's how slow it is compared to the other. And we don't, and I mean, I wish we cared about this, but this would be the entire world with the exception of coders would say, so what it's faster on my computer. Well, um, let, let me, and, let me add, and that makes me sad. Let me add one thing though, that often doesn't get talked about. Um, tight, great looking code is very, very valuable when you're maintaining it over a long period of time, right? That what people forget is that when you write software, it's not a finite experience. We don't, you know, no one uses Microsoft Word version one. You know, it's progressed to version whatever it is now, 15 or something, because 
that's the way it works. Things get improved over time. And the problem is that the team that are working on that project over maybe a five or a 10 year period are going to be very, very different people. You know, the, the, most programmers last maybe two years in their job and they get bored and they move on, on to something else. Well, somebody's got to pick up that person's code. And if you heard some of the screams and yelling and profanity I've seen and heard from the guy, the new guy who picks up the old guy's pile of crap, you know, that, that's the world that programmers live in. Nobody wants to be a maintenance programmer, and yet that's what they're inheriting every single time. So somebody who does actually take care and documents it and comments it and does it right, does it elegantly and tests and tests and tests it, is going to be praised long after they've left the company and they'll feel good about themselves. The problem is they're not going to receive that praise personally. So what do they care? They just want to get their paycheck and get out of there. But but to offer some counterpoint there, let's let's not forget that perfection is the enemy of good enough. At some time, most of the time, good enough is all you need. If you're pursuing perfection, you get in the way of good enough. Now, the what this it's not really an article with this blurb here is about is that you know people aren't even settling for good enough they're settling for just barely works but honestly a good percentage of the time just barely works is good enough um and you know i I like the idea of legacy artisanal code but that's you know a very small portion of the code that's ever written most of it is obsolete and discarded very shortly so the, you have to balance the needs of the very fast. I mean, this conversation I was having today, um, one of uh, one of my friends is is learning some coding right now, and and so they learned one language where they were told always uh, define your variables, and then they learned another language never define your variables, and then they learned another language you can define your variables if you want to, um, and all of these things make a lot of sense in their own context. Context is important here. Uh, and this the, this guy says that in software, if a program runs at 1% or even 0.01% of the possible performance, everybody seems to be okay with it. I, I think that's a bit of hyperbole, but even if it's not, if that 0.01% of possible is good enough, personally, I'm okay with it. It's all about good enough. Right, but that lead, you're, you're leaving out the law of unintended consequences. You know, all of those times where your program freezes for a second because it wasn't written right you know that's a that's an exploitation waiting to happen so you know i mean if i just you know you got to throw the little security fire in there and just try to stir something up and just say you know a lot of the vulnerabilities are because of insecure practices i mean we've all done in tech Oh man, why isn't this working? Let me turn off the firewall. Let me disable the antivirus software. Turn off all of the security. Okay, it works. And then the phone rings and you forget. And a month later, the entire office is infected and trace it back to this one machine. You're like, oh crap, you know, because, and I mean, you know, it's a little different, but it's not much. It's like, we got to get the code out the door. Hey, this works and the machine bogs for a little bit, but it gets open. Oh, we'll take care of that in a patch later on. And then they leave and somebody else comes in and the patch was for something else. And then those, you know, you know, who knows, maybe all this bad coding is really plants by the NSA to open up back doors for the world's code. There's my, there's your tinfoil hat for the week.
Well, I could, I could forgive bad code if security was a it was a priority. I mean, and it, it isn't unfortunately; it falls by the wayside. We, you know, there's a saying in in programming that, um, you know, a good programmer when crossing a one way street looks both ways, and and that's exactly the problem here. We don't code for failure; we code for success, and and that's why we have so many holes and bugs. And Facebook gets hacked yet again this week. It's same old, same old. Yeah, and actually, Seth, I have a great story. It, it ties nicely in with the fact that my uh, youngest child is 10 years old. This was actually my middle child. Um, I was setting up a uh, web server of some sort at my former employer, uh, and as one does when you're first setting it up, chmod-r777, um, and you just give everybody permissions to everything wide open um, because... Um, you know, you know, you're, you'll fix that later. So I, I had set up uh, a LAMP server, Linux, Apache, MySQL, PHP, and had opened everything up and was just tweaking things. And I get the call from my wife. Um, I'm at the hospital. Uh, they're going to induce labor in the morning. So I jumped up and ran, and I I went away. And I went. I was out for two weeks with my new baby, enjoying time with my new baby. And I came back. And of course, I didn't own that box anymore. That was not my box. That was owned by some kid in Russia. Um, and it was spewing out all sorts of crap all over my network. Now, fortunately, I had it sandboxed in such a way that they weren't going to get anything. Uh, but had I not taken that precaution, I could well have been hosting nuclear codes for China's uh, missile program because I'll get to it later ended up being way later so instead it was just a nuke and pave let's just format the hard drive and start over again uh but that sort of stuff happens all the time only it's not a pregnancy it's a i'll get to it later oh shipping deadlines today all right well we'll just ship what we've got and you end up with things that go into the wild with you know the world can can access it yep so you know there you go graybeard's complaining about these kids today I tried. And then finally, Google wins Android once and for all. Well, this is the 10th anniversary month-ish of Android shipping. So um, this was just a story about how, you know, it's kind of an interesting story. This is from the register, um, you know, I think they did a cool job. You know, they were talking a little bit about the history of, you know, mobile telephones and how whenever the iPhone came out, the industry, everybody but like Google was kind of slow to see it. Um, Google reacted faster than anyone else and um, and consequently drew the ire of the, you know, the almighty Steve Jobs that, you know, we can't badmouth him because I don't know why. But and so he wait, he spent a lot of money trying to crush Google, but yet you know, everybody agrees Android phones are pretty and, you know, and, oh, look at the Apple ecosystem. It's totally secure and bulletproof, you know, and we all know that's a lie. But yet in a numerical basis, Google rules the smartphone world. So, you know, they might not rule the high end market, but Google rules the smartphone world and quantity is a quality all of its own. And he, they, this article just kind of goes in with how they were able to do it because uh, even if Android fragments, it all comes back to, you know, Gmail and YouTube. And as long as those are popular, Google will continue to rule the uh, Android world. Yeah. The, the G1 was a terrible phone, uh, but it was a start uh, and 
you know, Google rules the world, plain and simple. It's quite interesting yep. nostalgia, though, isn't it? Looking back 10 years at what the original first Android phone was. I remember when that came out, I was really excited, not because it was going to be a great phone, but because I, I'd just gone through this strange experience where I was driving across the desert and I had an iPhone. I think back in those days, it was like a four, some you know early one. And uh, I get this text message somewhere outside of Yuma, Arizona, that a server that I was hosting went down. And it was for a government client that I just got. So I needed to get this thing rebooted and back online. And here I am in my car in the desert and I cannot get a network connection to do it. And, and I remember, you know, the, the, this is when they first did tethering. And so this Apple thing was locked down in its little walled garden and you couldn't make a connection of your computer through the phone. You couldn't tether. I was so furious that I was... I, I would have killed for an Android phone because back in those days, they could tether. And that was enough. It didn't have to be the greatest phone, the best user experience. It was that Apple just did such a crappy job at allowing me to look after my customers. I would have taken that thing in a heartbeat. So I, I do have fond memories of the Android phone, as dysfunctional as it was, but it did get me out of a lot of strife after that. So just a, a point of order... The tethering thing was not an Apple thing. It was an AT&T thing, which was the exclusive carrier for iPhone. AT&T didn't allow tethering unless you bought their tethering plan at nearly double the cost of your regular plan. Yeah, I uh, think you're right. I yeah. think you're and right. So Apple played by those rules. Google didn't play by those rules. They let you just bypass and tether if you wanted to. And, and so for a while there, AT&T was detecting that and cutting you off. And so you, you'd tether on your Android phone until they, they being AT&T, found that you were tethering and they'd cut you off and then send you a bill. But eventually, uh, AT&T lost that game of whack-a-mole. And now, any, pretty much anybody can tether anytime, whether you have a plan for it or not. I know I do it often enough. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Yay, tethering. Yeah. <laughs> it just goes to show you that uh, if people want to do something, they will do it regardless of whether or not you allow them. And, uh, and that's probably what made Android win overall was they let people do stuff, even stupid stuff like brick your phone. You can brick your Android phone. They give you the power to ruin your own device. Um, I think almost everybody who has an iPhone, um, is happy with the experience of that iPhone. Um, and you know, Android users may not be able to say the same thing. Although today it's a pretty solid OS, but it took a lot longer to get there. Uh, but 10 years ago, I mean, you can always tell a movie or a TV show when it was made, if it was pre 2007 and they all still have flip phones or slide up phones. Right. And then 2007, suddenly everybody's holding a black slab of glass. It really changed yeah. the world in a way that, that I don't think we can fully understand yet. I agree. So 2007 was the iPhone. 2008 was Android and uh, the world has never been the same since. Okay. Yay. So now, Seth, what happened this week in history? All right, Mark. Well, I wanted to let you and everyone in the interwebs know that on September the 30th, 1980, the Ethernet was born. 
Digital Intel and Xerox partnered to release version 1.0 of the Ethernet specifications known as the Blue Book. Since that time, Ethernet has evolved into the de facto networking standard for local area networks in businesses and the home. Think about that. Digital, who invented the iPod pre-Apple, um, you know, do, do the research on that. Intel, you know. Basically, you're, you know, the world runs on Intel, blah, 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 and Xerox, uh, Palo Alto, Spark, all that kind of stuff. Those companies combined, because imagine if each one of them tried to do their own networking, the the mess that it would have been until one of them finally won. They, they kind of joined forces and let's use our power for good. You know, you know, when the power of the planets align, Captain Power for the win, all that kind of stuff. But they... They joined forces and created Ethernet 1.0 in 1980. And look where we are today because people worked together and gave up some of their control. And so now the who, the inter- Ethernet is in the wild and running loose. But anyway, that happened this week in History Mark. And now back to you. And, and for those of you who are non-network geeks, Ethernet is that thing that's slightly bigger than a phone cable that plugs into the wall. That's Ethernet, and it's everywhere. The internet wouldn't be what it is if not Ethernet first. It's so. also important to remember that although it came out in 1980, it actually didn't take a foothold as being the de facto standard for about seven years later. Mm-hmm. Prior to that, there was like, I think it was ArcNet was competing with it, and then Token IBM. Yep, Token Ring, yeah. And IBM had their own proprietary uh networking stuff off the the old system 38s and 36s that they were trying to roll out and it was a battle it was really hard i mean remember netware remember all of that ipx stuff and i mean ethernet's a lower layer than that but this was wild west stuff back in those days and the fact that it it survived it and it ended up becoming the de facto standard that led to the workstations that produced the code that made the internet possible and the rest is history. But yeah, I triple E for the win, right? Keep, keep things in the open format and, and you can, you can make good things happen. Yep. What he said. Uh, all right, Seth, what, what is your bit of randomness this evening? When is that photo? I, I like the, the title. Okay, so this is, uh, it's Photo Roulette. So you go to this website and a picture pops up and you have 10 guesses to zero in on the year the picture was taken. So, um, you know, it's just, it's kind of interesting. Um, a bit of time, you know, th- this is one of those things I think if, if you're stuck in line for a little bit and you don't want to waste time on useless games, look at useless pictures and see if you can figure out when they were taken. So photo roulette for the time wasting win. I got it in four guesses. So waiting for the streetcar in Chicago was in 1940. So. Ah, cool. It's a higher, lower, getting warmer thing. I got it in three. Right. Woohoo. <laughs> Miracle. Yeah, I could waste some time cool. here. Yeah, I um, could too. Yeah, so 
All right, this is the part of the show where I tell you how you can feed back to us, how you can let us know what's on your mind. You can go to elementop.com, click the Contact Us button at the top of the page, answer the world's hardest caption, fill out the form. Man, all these steps that you have to go through. Uh, and then let us know what you think. Or if you if you like it simple, just uh, send us an email. Fire, fire up MUT on your command line Unix uh, session and just type away to uh, geekrant at elementop.com. Much simpler that uh, or you can leave us a voicemail at 559 i and you have to figure out what i am uh, what numbers i are because i don't know um and uh <laughs> and leave us a voicemail and we'll uh we'll play it on the show we like to hear what you think this was just sort of a random potpourri kind of episode uh we we do like to try to actually have themes and topics from time to time but uh you know the the, the potpourri is nice too uh, we hope you enjoyed it uh if you did tell everybody else you about uh about it if you didn't keep it to yourself uh <laughs> <laughs> Miles, Seth, as always, thanks for being the great host that you are. You, the listener, thanks for hanging out with us, and uh, we'll see you that uh, see you next week. And remember, pay for what you like. <laughs>